Hi there, welcome to Minding Your Mind. Our podcast is all about your mind and about how it works and about mental illness and about mental health. I'm with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. When someone has a mental health issue, medication might be part of the treatment, as might therapy and behavioural and cognitive strategies like taking care of your body clock exercise and cultivating an optimistic outlook. With When medication, most commonly antidepressants, is prescribed, then often after a number of months or a year or a year and a half, the person's feeling better and in consultation with their doctor, they decide to reduce their medication, see how it goes, and if they continue to feel good, gradually go off it cautiously. Others may need medication for a longer time, for many years, even for the rest of their life. The medication may have side effects the person finds unpleasant. They might have to decide on a trade-off. Is putting up with the side effects worth the positive difference the medication makes? They might initially think, yes, it is, but then two years later think, well, I feel good now. Maybe I don't need medication because these side effects are real and irritating and I really want to get rid of them. But a big part of the reason they might feel good might be because of the medication. But it's really hard to know unless you try going off the medication. That's a dilemma, isn't it? How do we know how much of a difference mental health medication is making? How do you measure it apart from trial and error? And how do those on long-term medication work out the trade-off between the pluses and minuses of medication and when to experiment with withdrawing from it? Ian, who needs to go on long-term medication? What are the most common types of conditions. So when people have recurrent or persistent depression and they've benefited from medication, then clearly the issue is what else can they do that would increase the chance they could come off medication? So if people have recovered, do they do certain kinds of things, cognitive behavioural therapies, various sorts of psychotherapy, change their activity patterns, their sleep patterns, change their alcohol and drug use patterns. Can they do a whole lot of things, change their personal life in ways that are actually supportive? Mm. Can they do stuff that would decrease the chance? However- And you mentioned depression. Oh, well, we'll talk about bipolar, schizophrenia, et cetera, a bit later. Yeah. Just picking depression as the common mm. garden variety. Yeah. You know, so they do everything they can, but then they do try- to come off medication, but have recurrence. You know, and it's pretty clear. Is that common? Yes. Yeah. So but people it's do. It's also common to, to recover, go off the medication and be okay, isn't it? Right. So common. depression, in fact, just discussing with my, one of my colleagues just this week, if you go back to the whole history of psychiatry and its clinical kind of classification systems, there used to be sort of two types. Those that persist, <laughs> just to get an illness and mm. stay unwell, and those that have more of a cyclical pattern, they have more of an on-off kind of pattern. They go for a certain period of time, then they stop. However, they often recur again at some other point in the future in your life. Mm. And depression is classically seen as one of those cyclical types of problems. It is the sort of thing that comes and goes. So people get well, and the episode might have lasted. Certainly before we had medication, episodes often lasted one or two years mm. and then ended. And then there might be a period where people didn't get depressed, but then at some other stage in their life, it recurred again. Mm. So that kind of recurrent pattern. Of course, some people do not recover completely 
from the first episode. So backing up a little, what's become more controversial in recent years is that if you've only been depressed once, then it's reasonable to say, okay, it's happened once in my life, maybe in a set of circumstances, and I've recovered, it would be unlikely that you would actually need to continue to take medication beyond that particular period. Once you've recovered, we generally say six to 12 months after you recovered, fine, let's see if you can get by. But if you've had, say, three episodes in the last five years of severe depression that's really interfered with your life mm. and has recurred, despite all the other things that you've done, then it's much more likely that you may need to consider staying on medication for a longer period. Mm. Now, unfortunately, this is, to use your phrase, trial and error. This is There's no other way of independently knowing whether it's likely to recur or not. That is, we don't have a way of looking at the brain to see whether it's recovered, actually recovered. And we also don't have a way, correct me if I'm wrong, of actually measuring whether it what, what sort of a difference antidepressants are making. You might be recovering because the episode is passing and the antidepressants might have very little to do with it or the antidepressants might be the major factor in why you're recovering. We just don't know. Yes, since we don't have what we call a biomarker, we don't have an objective independent test of what it was that the medication changed. Has it fixed the problem? Or not. This Whereas, is kind of and in some areas of medicine, you do, don't you? Like, you, I don't know, I'm no expert, blood, cholesterol. Oh, you, we put you on that pill, it's gone down 18%. Yeah. Hmm. So for men of our age, you're having a heart attack, they stick a stent down your coronary artery, yeah. there was no blood flow, now the blood flow's back. Yeah. Pain's gone. You go, okay, fix the problem. For certain other things like lung infections, you see the lung, you see on x-ray, it's full of fluid, it's terrible. You take the antibiotics, you get treated, fluid's gone. Bug's gone. Yes. So in many other areas of medicine, we have some other independent objective test that the treatment did something, what it did relieved the problem, and then you go, okay, job done. Don't need it. Now, in many other areas, of course, people do need to stay on medication. So you've got insulin-dependent diabetes, you take away the insulin, your body's not mm. producing insulin, guess what? You're going to need to stick with it. And if you quit it, you're going to have the diabetes return. Some episodes like asthma where people take inhalers and various things. You'd be pretty confident that when you quit them, you're going to get a recurrence in certain areas. Epilepsy, you know, when people take away the anti-epileptic medication, a brain-related issue, they're likely to have recurrence of their seizures in various forms. So it's not that unusual in medicine to have areas where because the problem persists, the pathology, if you like, the, the organ of interest is still not functioning in the way you like, you need to take the medication, you need to take the treatment. Yeah, yeah. In other areas where they have more of these on-off phenomena, well, then we see. Side effects of antidepressants, my understanding, probably less overall than side effects of medication for more, well, I'm not going to say more serious, other types of conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar. Is that right? Yes. So the common antidepressant drugs, of which people are mainly taking these sort of Prozac-like drugs, the SSRIs and variations on that, the so-called SNRIs, have significant side effects. And so in a very large study that I've been party of, part of, I'm one of the lead investigators of. We've asked, yeah, well, I want to congratulate the people who volunteered, actually. Right, I was going yeah. to thank the 20,000 Australians wow. who volunteered to be part of that study, which is actually looking for the genetics. We're trying to work out what are the gene or the individual factors, the DNA-related factors that make you more likely to get depressed, but also influence this exact issue, the course, and also mm. the antidepressants, which ones you might respond to. Anyway, Sorry. in that study, at least two-thirds of people, a bit more, say they get significant benefits from taking medication. So they're taking antidepressants longer term. But 
they live with side effects. The two commonest ones. So two thirds get side effects. Did no, you so, mean? Well, well, two thirds say, "Look, I'm taking the drug." But then there's a whole range of other things they say, okay, do you get side effects as well? well most of them say, well, I have some side effects. They're not actually completely side effect free. Mm. So for antidepressants, what would be the most common ones? Yes. So the two common, two common ones stand out. Slow weight gain being one. So over time, over years of taking the medication, they've generally gained weight. But how do you establish that's because of the antidepressants and not just, you know, as we get older, we tend to gain weight? An excellent question. <laughs> People say it's the medication. And well, if, okay. people say lots of things. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I mean, I'd like as, a, as a doctor, I'm sometimes saying, well, was it the medication or over 10 years yeah. to some degree? But it seems like the rate of weight gain, at least for some of the people, is more than you would expect okay. from just aging. So we go, okay, fair enough. There may be metabolic changes associated with some of the medications. And the other one? Sex. Impaired sex. sexual function. Not more of, sex, uh, less sex. Loss of libido, change in actual sexual function in amongst women, particularly decreased chance of having an orgasm amongst men, difficulties with ejaculation. So really specific sexual problems on top of a more general problem of reduction in libido. Mm. Now, when people have recovered- Well, when you say problem, for some people, reduction in libido might be a good thing. People who are just obsessed by sex. <laughs> well, you'd like, you may wish to suggest that in my consulting office. I'll probably keep that one to myself. Um <laughs> But most people would say, look, these are the trade-offs in the, yeah. in the situation. I'm, and, and it's very important to say amongst those people, and these are often people who have had recurrent depression. So the people who have volunteered for our study tend not to people who be right. people who've just got depressed once. Yeah. They've done a lot of this trial and error sort of stuff. So they've made the decision, you know what, my life's better. I actually feel better. There's reduction in suicidalities, increased capacity to function. I'm getting real benefits from these things, but I'm living with some degree of side effects long term. Mm. So I think that is a common set of experiences. And at various times, those people, even though they've had recurrent depression because of the side effect issues, one, they say, I'm going to try coming off the drug. I reckon there's another reason, and that is you just want to, if you've been on antidepressants for five years, you know, you probably accepted it and you're aware of the benefits, but it'd just be nice not to be dependent on medication to go about your day. Like you, you kind of think, wouldn't it be good if I didn't have to, if I was just better? And I really don't know whether I can be because it's been five years. I really don't want to be, a, a you know, in inverted commas, a patient anymore. Nobody wants to be a patient ever. Is that, that common, that sort of attitude? Very common. Yeah. For all medications. We'll come to the mental health yeah, side. Right. Very common. I don't know about you, but we've got a box at home that's filled with all sorts of medications that have never been taken <laughs> or people have quit. We often set down various tracks, but we don't really want to have the problem. And yeah. if we think we can get by without the medication, yeah, we do. We quit it. And yeah. It interferes with people's lives. And if it's having significant side effects, then the desire to quit is strong. Is quit. Now, in the mental health area, don't you hate it? I'm oh, sorry. You know, when you get antibiotics and they say, well, you've got to take take it for six days. And after three days, you feel better. And you say, I don't want to take this anymore. They make my tummy a bit churny. Bit churny. Lots of people get tummy problems from antibiotics. Three, yeah, days, yeah. Is, three days is actually a long time. You must take it for seven. Yeah, yeah we go and look in the cupboard. Go and look at the cupboard for all the other things that people have got. Oh, in the okay. You anyway, know. back to well, no, it's an important point because people don't want to take their blood pressure tablets. They don't want to take their cholesterol lowering tablets. They don't want to take their arthritis tablets. You know, we just don't want to be sick. I don't even want to go to the bloody doctor. Exactly. 
<laughs> I've got a lovely doctor. I just, I'm just reluctant to go and see her. I always like her when I see her. I'm often joking with many of the people I see. Where's the medication? Did you take it? No, it's in my handbag. It's yeah, in my briefcase. Yeah, yeah. I will. Does it work from there? Well, <laughs> well, the placebo effect seems to be relatively large in the handbag or the briefcase. Yeah. So people kind of have that attitude in general because I want to say that is not unique to mental health medications. But in the mental health area, people really also go, if I quit the medication, I'm cured, right? So if I take yeah, the medication, right. I'm not cured. But if I quit the medication... I am cured. I'm back in control. I'm back in control of myself and my emotions and my thoughts in a much more personal way than their arthritis, their asthma, their blood pressure, all the other kind of medications Mm. they take, which are annoying. But they don't have this sense of, I'm really a proper person. I'm really a functioning person again if I quit my mental health medications. So the desire to chuck them in the bin and to not have to explain to anyone else that you're taking those medications or that you, here's a word, that I need those medications. No, you don't. You don't need them. The number of times I've had people in my office who come and tell me that their wife, husband, mother, children said, oh, dad, whatever else, you don't need those medications anymore. Now- Well, some people do need them. (laughs) Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. I mean, you don't need them. You'll continue to be alive, but you will be at high risk of feeling extremely depressed again. Yeah. So it's rare for the other- often people who are really close to someone who's taking medication do say that kind of stuff though. Yeah. Oh, you don't because they're trying to say, look, you're well, you're nice, we love you. Because of the medication. Again. And the proof of that would be you don't need the medication anymore. Which is also kind of like you needed it before. Like Okay. You're better you were, now. You were weak. Everyone wants to be better. Well you yeah, say also, cultivate an optimistic outlook. That's it. Yes. I want to believe that if you go off the pills you'll be better. We all want you to be better. The other side of the coin, of course, for families and carers is the person themselves throws the medication away a lot. And really? then, oh, yeah. And then. How would you do that? Well, nobody wants to take the pills. No one wants to be depressed. Like, <laughs> taking a pill takes three seconds, being depressed takes 24 hours. James, you should do a lot of the medication <laughs> counseling that I have to do, clearly. I mean, this is the logic, okay? But. Have you got a mean or average demographic profile of the person who is most likely to throw their antidepressants in the bin? Men like you and me. Really? Oh, they're terrible. They won't take them in the first place. No, I'm strong. I'm going to battle this thing. I'm going to fight the black dog and wrestle it to the ground and choke it on my own (laughs) through my own whiskey bottle. I say this in the Winston Churchill. (laughs) Through a whiskey bottle and a cigar, I'm going to fight it on the beaches. I'm going to beat the thing. And as such an insult to my strength. My sense of self. Well, I'm a the strong man, man. My strong man. I'm a my provider. Strong man. I'm a provider. I'm a warrior. I want to feel I'm a hunter. <laughs> and come, and the with, fact I can't get out of bed to yeah, you know, fight to the tiger. <laughs> Seems to escape. And in a lot of the men I would see, their wives, children, daughters, people who really care about them. I'm going, oh, can you please help? Mm. Can you convince him that when he takes the medication – He's actually quite a nice guy. We yeah. quite like him. When he doesn't, he's at home, he doesn't function, he drinks too much, he's irritable, he's very hard to be with, and we're really worried about him. Already lost three jobs. And the world's falling apart, but he won't take the medication. So that's the demographic of the one who won't start. Yeah, 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 right. Although a lot of people who won't start won't initially, and then over a period of time, gradually become more desperate, I guess, and gradually have more and more people who care about them 
trying to suggest that it might be a good idea and then sometimes do. Yes. So my advice to a lot of people, starting with the doctors and then the family and everyone else, is stick at it. Yeah. Like it's not surprising that people don't want to. Oh, and there's still, I mean, far less than 20 years ago, but there are still people that think, I don't want to be turned into a zombie. I don't want all this stuff mucking with my head and changing my personality. Now, you you know better than anyone, probably, that doesn't really happen. I like to say you'll be a better person. Yeah. (laughs) You might be a nice person. The way I've explained it to friends sometimes is it won't make you not yourself. It'll actually help you be yourself again. Your better self, your functioning self. As Neil Cole, we've had on this program, discusses, he's so much better playwright, he's so much better yeah. producer, he's so much better writer when he takes his medication. Yeah. Okay. Lots of other people are better husbands, employees, fathers when they take the medication. So, so sticking with antidepressants, which is what we've been talking about up to now, if after some time of being on them, a couple of years, a lot of years, whatever it is, you want to th- see if you're capable of managing without it, there's nothing wrong with that and that's completely normal and you know admirable in some ways, but you should do it, I, I would imagine, A, in consultation with your doc and B, very gradually and C, keep records. So keep records for a month beforehand, days, eight, seven, eight, seven, eight, seven, and then I'm withdrawing by half a tablet. Okay, seven, six, seven, six, seven, six. Oh, there's a trend there. Let's see what happens if I go down again. No, no, it's going back up again or it's going to, you know, get the data. Yes. That's good. very good. Do all of that. I just follow James's recommendations and you'll have this under control. Would you mind going out into the world of, you know, what we call, you know, doctor education and client education? Because that's exactly what people need to do. I mean, GPs are on that, aren't they? Come off gradually, do it with me. Let's meet again in a month, see how it's going. A month? That's a very long time. Okay, two weeks, a week, tomorrow. So, so this becomes important. Uh, just recently, I was doing a media interview, as I sometimes am known to do, about the terrible side effects of withdrawal from antidepressants. I went, hang on, hold the phone on that one. First of all, why were you on the medication? Can you remember why you went on it? Now, this might have been some years ago. What was the nature of the problem in the first place? Mm. Because one of the issues is further down the track, you are at risk of recurrence. Now, lots of people have also sucked up the media and adverse publicity that you've become dependent on the drugs, that you're addicted to the drugs. And you're going to have withdrawal, you know, as if we're talking heroin, alcohol, you know, cigarettes, et cetera. Now, it is true that the medications change brain chemistry, and we think they also change brain circuits. And the first issue is if you're going down that path for very good reasons, that most of the medications we're talking about these days, you want to do it very slowly. Mm. And different medications are technically different. I don't become too technical here. But different medications have different half-lives. That's the rate at which they're metabolized and disappear from the blood. Some, like Prozac I mentioned earlier on, fluoxetine, have very long half-lives. So they take quite a while to be effective. Even if you miss a tablet, they take a long time to come on, but they take a long time to go off. Others, very commonly prescribed ones, like sertraline, Zoloft, and Citalopram, have shorter half-lives, so they go away more quickly. Now, the shorter the half-life, the quicker it goes out of your blood and starts to have an effect on your brain. Some of the newer medications, the SNRIs, venlafaxine, desvenlafaxine, effexor-type drugs, they actually are particularly prone to this rapid withdrawal problem. Right. So you've got to do it really gradually. Yes. So when you say, oh, yeah, well, every doctor would recommend that, I'm afraid to say, 
our experience would be, and uh, supported by many people, no. Oh, the doctor said, oh, look, uh, cut the dose in half and um, do that for a week or two and then quit. And then <laughs> tell us how it went. So rather and a lot than of people say half, very bad, yeah. Like you can cut a tablet in half, you can't cut it into eighths. But you can go tablet, 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 then you start to withdraw tablet, tablet, half, tablet, tablet, half, tablet, tablet, half. So you're putting in half every third day or something. So it's really gradual. And then Got a it. bit more, then a bit Got more. It. So this tapering, just think the tapering word, tapering. If you've been on a very short half-life drug, you might need to substitute a longer half-life drug, actually. Right. Or you might need to do exactly what you were saying, reduce it in small amounts every day and then every second day and all sorts of things. Take time to avoid in the first two weeks in particular actually withdrawal effects. Mm. So you're moving towards. So don't think you're going to do this really quickly. Yeah. Because the chance then that either you get, first of all, withdrawal effects or secondary uh, recurrence of the problem down the track yeah. is increased by rapid withdrawal. So all of that is about antidepressants, which is are used to do, to uh, treat, of course, depression, but also anxiety, the two most common mental health issues. Now, when we get into more serious things, bipolar, schizophrenia, strong, well, I don't know if they're stronger, seem to be more powerful medications and often bigger side effects. More side effects, yes. Yeah. So to give us an example, a couple of those side effects people might expect. So in the, uh, well, the so-called antipsychotic drugs yep. are used commonly in both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. In the old days, the older drugs used to cause a lot of so-called Parkinsonian side effects. They made people shuffle and slow and be slowed down and look like they had Parkinson's disease. Right. So you could often tell people on the street, who, young people who were taking those drugs because mm. they were shuffling like an old man or they had tremor, they looked slowed down, how the responses. So those so-called neurological side effects and much longer term develop often abnormal movements around their mouth and around their face, really nasty kind of sets of things. The newer drugs, the so-called second-generation antipsychotics, much more commonly prescribed, their biggest set of side effects are weight gain, very substantial weight gain mm. associated with those drugs. So much, much more than with antidepressants or normal associated ageing, right? <laughs> Looking at us as we age and go round in the middle, much more than you'd expect for age. And that's also associated then with increased risk of things like diabetes, late on, uh, middle age onset diabetes, type two diabetes. So the metabolic complications. And, uh, and aren't there drugs. ones like uh, acne and so we'll come to that brain fog and so the sedation type effects because some of those are more sedative than others. So mm. people feeling slowed down in their head. So mm. not so obvious anymore in their body, which was true of the older drugs. You could tell who was taking them walking down the street. But people say, I can't think straight. Actually, That'd be bad. Yeah. So they're keen to reduce those drugs. And often they're, again, trying to find some of the newer, newer drugs. So of the second generation antipsychotics, there are now newer ones that tend to have less weight gain, less side effects, and offer a better metabolic profile than the ones that came out about 15 years ago. See, this is the real dilemma, isn't it? Like I would, if I was deeply depressed, I'd trade a loss of libido to feel better like yep. that. It wouldn't be a hard decision. But weight gain, brain fog, you know, if it was in my 20s and suddenly I had pimples bursting out everywhere, they would be really big things. Yes. On the other hand, if I've got a really big condition like bipolar and schizophrenia, so it's a harder dilemma, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 
So, and, and also, if you're being told by, well, you, you know, you you uh, if you if you want to deal effectively with your bipolar or your schizophrenia, you need to be on this for the rest of your life. Well, certainly. Well, the the rest of the life one's kind of interesting mm. because. Often the most severe episodes of many of these illnesses are when people are teenagers or young adults. Yeah. So in the past, we did tend to say it's very likely you'll be on these medications for life or as long as we can sort of see. As we've moved towards earlier intervention type approaches, saying that less and less, there may be a period of your life, certainly maybe the next five years, but you know, once you're into your 20s or your brain's fully developed and you're through the worst of it, maybe not. Mm. But it certainly is a significant period. And you, you just said the key thing. Who wants to be 18, 19 and gaining weight and slowed down and having other metabolic side effects or other other effects on your hormonal systems that these things may interfere with? Mm. So that's a big trade-off. So the really big issue there, I think, is really uh, detailed conversations with the doctor or the prescriber. What's the medication for me that's least like that works, keeps me out of hospital, keeps me functioning, takes away the worst of my symptoms, but I can most live with. Mm. And then other issues to try and make sure that things like weight gain, et cetera, are contained. There's a lot of interest. Can you just do that through activity, food restriction, lifestyle, or is it possible that you need to look at other ways of trying to contain weight, other medications in various ways? So big debate there. The bipolar disorder area, because you threw in the acne one a minute there ago, you know, our favorite medication for bipolar disorder is actually lithium. Mm. And if you go on to that particular medication after um, a manic episode or in association with diagnosed bipolar disorder, it's more likely. It has a lot of particular side effects in terms of thirst and in terms of needing to monitor thyroid function, but in terms of skin conditions like acne, it tends to be down that end of the sets of problems. Now, again, mm. if you're a young person who's trying to establish a life and be well, and you've got these sorts of skin conditions and other kind of complications, mm. then- Bit of brain fog. Well, lithium, not so much brain fog, but, mm. but anyway, you've got sets of problems that you yeah. feel clearly occur when you're taking the medication, that particular medication, as distinct from some other medication, then yeah, again, trying to weigh up the risks and benefits. So for those people with bipolar disorder and those people with psychotic disorders, these risk benefit, you know, what's the, what's the gain, what's the loss- is there another alternative medication? Is there a different combination that I could be taking mm. that gets the same effect? But, but, but from a, bipolar, you just said lithium's the favourite. Yeah. It's, it's not as if there's eight alternatives. Unfortunately, it's top shelf yeah. and everything else is yeah. a bit third shelf. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything else- Which is good that it's there if it's very effective. Unfortunately, it has side effects. Yes. Mm. And of course, in the individual person- the severity of those side effects and their impacts, and particularly, again, with younger people who try and establish relationships, trying to be out in the world, really don't want side effects that other people see, mm. weight gain, acne, things like that. And, and it tough- also must be difficult for people with both those serious conditions or either of them, bipolar or schizophrenia, because they will be thinking, I'm better now. Again, as we discussed before, I'm better now. I haven't had an episode for a year. Yes, I'm on the medication, but maybe it's gone away. Maybe I'm through it. Maybe I'm 25 now and I'm through that high risk area. Maybe I should just go off and see what happens. You can understand people thinking that. Entirely. Mm. Entirely. And particularly when people are 25 and they had a problem when they were 15 yeah. and they're through 
that adolescent early adult phase, then certainly for a proportion of people, the illness is less severe then. That was the worst period and it's less severe. Now, this depends, particularly for young women, if they're going to go on and have children, go through childbirth and other areas, there are other high-risk periods in their life. Of a recurrence. Of a recurrence, particularly for bipolar disorder and the mood disorders where up and down hormonal problems, particularly mm. highest or at their peak in childbirth and also sleep-wake cycle disruption is really likely. So it is the case that particularly for women, the whole perinatal kind of idea and what happens around childbirth, risky period. Yeah. And, and is it the same principle as you discussed with antidepressants and a gradual reduction of medication very slowly whilst keeping records of what you're experiencing? The same principles for those, for schizophrenia and bipolar and those sorts of things? Yes. In the bipolar category, sometimes people are aware of other triggers, other things that matter, changes in seasons, mm. doing other particular jobs, sleep-wake cycle type changes particularly stressful periods in their life, all those kinds of things <laughs> they may see as putting them more at risk yeah. and therefore trying to manage those in a non-pharmacological way, trying to be aware of those. In the psychotic disorders, people also have exacerbations. They do have times when they're sometimes worse, sometimes not so good, what can be done in the external environment to try to ameliorate that. Well, that so that Things like stress. Yes, mm. relationships, stress, work. Maybe not in the direction you think. Actually, being at work is really good. Being active is really good. Yeah, being yeah, socially yeah. engaged. So certainly not avoiding those situations, but actually engaging and having other cognitive strategies, the sort of things that we talk about, having other skills that people can learn to cope with those things better, all really important. So it's not just the medication. But it is true to say in those areas, one's often talking about reducing the dose or trying to minimise the effect, and less likely to be saying this is entirely going to be a medication-free experience. Mm. If the original illness has been severe, yeah. and certainly if it has recurred frequently and is still messing with your life. I would imagine in that situation, and I guess this is true for many things in life, raging against the injustice of it all is not that helpful i.e., why do I have this condition? Why do I have to be on these pills for the rest of my life or, or for a long period of time that has all these uh, side effects? It's it's not fair. That's not really helpful, isn't it? As soon as you can move to some sort of acceptance, here I am, I'm alive, this is my life, this is what I've got, I'm going to make the best of it the better. Easy to say, obviously. So easy to say. Yeah. <laughs> For most young people, and you see this with the onset of insulin-dependent diabetes in young people or the onset of severe inflammatory arthritis in young people. Why me? Why yeah. now? And these things likely to persist, and I can't see myself being free of this particular problem, and the doctors seem to say it goes on and, you know, talking about lifetime this, and the impact's going to be something I'm going to have to live with, along with often family parents, others, needing to go, okay, this is the situation we're in. So let's, I'm going for the together here, let's try and manage it together rather than raging against the unfairness of the thing mm. or the unfairness of the society that you know contributed to this thing or whatever else you think. So sometimes you see you know, a lot of conflict within families. I've got the illness, no, I don't. <laughs> On either ways, and I find that fascinating Often young people that we would see sort of accept they've got it, but their parents go, no, they haven't. 
My kid doesn't have it. Often parents worrying about whether they're to blame, I think, for the problem in Mm. some way or other. Well, genes and environment. Well, (laughs) some parents parents may need to reflect. (laughs) Let's just say, well, a whole lot of self-blame doesn't help Mm. and a whole lot of denial doesn't help. So we're of the view that a lot of family engagement and education is important. In fact, if you look at uh, some of the literature about this, about what really makes a difference, family engagement and family education stands out a lot. Because oh, this yeah. this tends to be a source of huge conflict within families. Take the medication. No, I don't want to take the medication. Yes, you should. You know, or I won't take the medication. No, don't take the medication. You don't need it. You know. Oh, okay. Well, let's go into this one. You've got a a kid living with you. They might be twelve. They might be seventeen. They might be older. Whatever they are, and you suspect, particularly when they get to the age where. You know, it's not really appropriate for mum or dad to come in and say, time to take your pill. They're not 12. But you suspect maybe they're not taking their medication at, at all. Oh, times. you can tell. Yeah, <laughs> You can right. tell they haven't taken it. Yeah. And what's the best way to handle that? Well, I think the first thing we've been discussing is some understanding of the predicament. Yeah, yeah. This is a predicament. These side effects people. are real. Side effects are unpleasant. real. Who wants to really have one of these problems? Got to live with this particular issue. And I think this is where sharing experiences becomes important. Tapping into the, what's called the lived experience world. How are other people coping? What is going on? So learning from others, how they've made that adaptation, either individually or as families in terms of supporting each other. It's mm. a tough gig. It's what parents and families of kids with diabetes do. It's what parents and kids with multiple sclerosis do and other things. You know, Sharing the experience of having this particular problem and the challenges that this illness raises. Mm for the person themselves and for their families. That, that, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved kind of thing, I think is really important. And then understanding within families, like who wants to take the medication every day? You know, who really wants to persist? It's hard, you know. Do you take your tablets every day? Well, sort of, you know. I do my asthma puffer every 12 hours. Yeah. But sharing the experience of how you come to do that, and that it's tough, you know, it's not yeah. an easy thing. So what tends to happen is a lot of conflict and a lot of criticism and a lot of disputation. Not that helpful. Mm. As distinct from the common journey, <laughs> we're all affected by this. You know, we are all affected by this. Can we, can so we come to understand? understand in the other person's shoes. Yeah, so the I, empathy question. I get question. why my parents are really anxious about this. I get why my kid has some reluctance and maybe even a bit of denial, for example. I know it's a funny thing for me to say, James, but I think we need to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then, of course, behaviourist in me, then we need to do it. And how are we going to look at that? So it's perfectly reasonable for parents to be concerned that their kids aren't taking the medication. It's perfectly reasonable to kind of say it affects us all. We're all affected. So in what way can we be on that journey together? And also, in what ways can we be in dialogue with the doctors and whatever else about what are the main side effects? What are the main benefits? Are there trade-offs? Are there alternatives? What's new? What's happening? What alternatives are there? Dose-wise, medication choice-wise? I've been in a lot of discussions recently, as you would be aware from our previous episodes about psychedelics and other things, about hope for the future. You know, mm. drug development, medication development, some people don't like saying drug development, but developing new stuff to take is happening all the time. Good. And we need to see more of that. 
Mm. We need to look at it. So I also think the future is not the same as now. Well, so just look we talk, back 20 years. Exactly. So we've seen major changes in the antipsychotics I was talking about before. When I was a young psychiatrist, the side effects of taking those drugs for schizophrenia were terrible. Mm. Everyone on the street could tell you were taking them. They had all sorts of effects that did a lot to control the psychotic phenomena but were really hard to live with. So the trade-off was even harder. Much harder. And very understandable that no one wanted to continue with those medications for any yeah. significant period of time. Now, problems, but not nearly the problems they were. What you might call the third generation of these types of drugs, far less problems than the previous type. And we're on, on a journey towards better treatments. So good. better is yet to come. A wonderful, hopeful ending. Do send us an email with any questions or comments or... If you want to suggest further topics, and it's great that so many people are doing that. The list is long. My um, The email is mindingyourmind2, that's mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. Uh, the book version, Minding Your Mind, written by Ian and myself, is out, covers lots of the themes and topics we discuss, how our mind works, what can go wrong, and how we can improve our mental health. Our podcast is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them, of course, or call Lifeline on 13114.